0: A Podcast one production. Oh, that's a girly one. The big
1: questions. G'day Adam Spencer here. Welcome to another instalment of the big questions. Today I ask, what happens when stars collide? I don't mean when Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe appear on stage together for the first time. No, 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 I'm talking about neutron stars. It turns out when massive objects smash together, our universe itself wobbles. I'm talking about gravitational waves and an incredible discovery that a couple of scientists from the University of Sydney were recently part of. You're gonna have your mind stretched over the next little while Stay with me on the journey. The things we reveal here are quite incredible as we ask what happens when stars collide. Professor Tara Murphy and Dougal Doby, welcome to The Big Questions. Hi, Adam. Even by my nerdy standards, I'm really excited today. We're going to talk about gravitational waves. This is pretty heavy stuff. Let's go gravitational waves 101. I'll start with you, Professor Murphy. What is a gravitational wave? It goes back to Einstein 100 years ago, doesn't it?
2: That's right. It's one of the predictions of Einstein's general theory of relativity, that if you have a really massive object accelerating, then it will cause uh, space-time to actually ripple and gravitational waves will occur.
1: What do you mean by, Dougal, space-time itself actually stretching and contracting? I, I, I can imagine water rippling if I drop a stone into a River. What do you mean by space time itself contracting and rippling?
3: So you might have seen those um, people like Brian Cox um, talking about space time and and they have like a rubber sheet and they drop like a marble or or a weight or something in it.
1: The idea of gravity the mass of a planet being like a heavy ball sitting in the middle of a giant trampoline.
3: Exactly exactly and the gravitational waves that we see are essentially taking those distortions and sort of moving them. So
1: space time itself contracting and expanding. That's
2: actually something that we're, well, I can't say we're familiar with it, but it's something we've, um, we're have we living with in astronomy ever since relativity. You might have heard the quote that mass tells space how to bend mm-hmm. and space tells mass how to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is just an extension of that idea.
1: So you say uh, if a giant massive event, and we'll talk about some soon, happen, it creates gravitational waves. But Strictly, the event doesn't have to be massive. Listen, now I'm sort of doing an, an exaggerated hand wave. Am I creating gravitational waves while I'm doing this?
2: Your hand has mass. It's accelerating in space. And so, yes, you're creating gravitational waves that are so small there's no possible way of detecting them.
1: So I not, not only can I feel the wind because I'm displacing air near my head, but space-time itself around my hand is actually very, very slightly stretching and contracting, stretching and contracting.
2: It's exactly like the idea that I have mass, that tree over there has mass. So there's a gravitational force between us, but we don't feel it because it's so small. We feel the gravitational force attracting us to earth. We don't feel the gravitational force of that tree.
1: Yeah. So a couple of years ago, Dougal, and this is before, a couple of years ago, you're still in high school from what I can tell, looking at you. You look about (laughs) 14, which just magnifies your genius as far as I'm concerned. A couple of years ago, something very big happened and we detected gravitational waves. What was the event, this big colossal event that mucked around with space-time a bit that we detected?
3: So because these gravitational waves are so, so small, and like you said, you know, waving your hand around, it, it creates really, really tiny gravitational waves. You need the most energetic, most massive events in the universe to actually create them to an extent that we can observe them. And so the first detection of gravitational waves, uh, first direct detection actually, um, was from two black holes spinning into one another and colliding. And okay, so what, what's a black hole, Tara?
2: So a black hole is when you have so much mass um, that nothing can escape even light. So you have something that's so dense that uh, you have, in a sense, a singularity, and um, within the event horizon, nothing can escape.
1: That They happen when, if something like a big star like our sun, if a massive sun eventually burns itself out, the remaining matter collapses on itself, and if it smashes together hard enough, you can, if it's sufficiently massive, that might be where black holes come from?
2: Exactly. So when a massive star explodes and then the core collapses, if that gets dense enough, it becomes a black
1: hole. Okay. And now these two black holes we were talking about when they crunched into each other, they were like 20 times and 30 times the... Mass of our sun or something?
3: Yeah, exactly. They were fairly big black holes compared to what we're used to. And sitting
1: in space, they start sucking on each other with gravity and they're close enough together that they
3: they start to spiral inwards, and when they get close enough, they sort of just merge. Okay, so the
1: idea of twenty of our suns and thirty of our suns smashing into each other, I can imagine that'd go that'd go bang. What happened when that went bang? How long ago? where did it happen? How long ago did it happen?
2: So that happened a long way away in the universe, a billion light years. Um, and what happened was that gravitational waves were produced. So space-time was distorted and those ripples in space-time travelled towards Earth where the LIGO interferometer detected them.
1: This happened like 1.3 billion light years away. That's right. So would the original gravitational waves, you know, much closer where it happened, been a lot bigger than when they get to Earth? Do they sort of a bit, you know, peter out over time?
2: Absolutely. The impact is greatest uh, right near the event and much weaker the further away you are from it. So we have, that means from an astronomy point of view, we have more chance of detecting something the closer it is to Earth.
1: Okay, so a long way away, a long time ago, two black holes go bang into each other and space-time itself goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And these giant gravity... And I'm not saying that's necessarily the sound it makes. You could be a PhD in that for you, Dougal. The space-time itself wobbles. I'm, I'm picturing that like the ripples going out over a pond from where I've dropped a stone. And the ripples are getting smaller and smaller, but eventually they hit Earth. And what I find is just truly incredible is that we could design something on Earth that would detect space-time itself wobbling. Tara just used the word LIGO. That's the, That's the device that detected these gravitational waves. Is that right, Dougal?
3: Yeah. So LIGO is essentially a system of two interferometers, which is- I'm going complicated... to stop you right there. <laughs> Obviously, I know what an interferometer
1: is, but hypothetically, yep. if I didn't, what would you tell me about? What's an interferom- What it's Interference?
3: Actually, it's actually really, really simple. It's basically you're bouncing light off some mirrors- um and then letting the light interfere with it, with itself and from that you can get information
1: yeah the idea is if i shoot light in two different directions at you know right angles to each other if i shoot the light in two different directions and it goes exactly the same distance hits the mirror and comes back the light the the light wave should cancel each other out back at the source
3: that's uh, right yes
1: so what does LIGO do then? What, if a gravitational wave passes through, what goes on at LIGO?
3: So basically they're using the um, interference pattern from the light sort of cancelling each other out or not perfectly cancelling each other out um, to actually measure the distances to these two mirrors along the two different arms. And if there's um, differences in the distance that should be exactly the same, then there's a good chance that there's a gravitational wave that's passed by.
1: So if while you're shining your light, the universe goes wobble, wobble at that point, in one direction, the light might travel a little bit further than in the other direction. And we see the interference when the light gets back. Is that, that's, is that a sort of amateur what's happening in a LIGO situation?
2: That's right. And the funny thing is about the LIGO detector is it's quite passive like that. You said, what's it doing to, d- to detect? It's actually just sitting there. Um, and it's Earth that, that ripples slightly. So that makes the arm in one direction slightly longer um, than in the other.
1: And this is the bit that blows my mind. When we say the light in one direction has gone, into usual words, Tara, in inverted commas, slightly further than the light in the other direction. And we see then when the light comes back, oh, I think the waves don't perfectly cancel. Each other. Oh, one's gone a little bit further. The light itself is going mm-hmm. something like four kilometres, how much further does it go in one direction than the other?
2: It actually goes less than one atom. Um, I, as you know, I've done a physics degree. I almost can't believe it's possible that we built LIGO. It's yeah, so
1: incredible. Th- this is truly amazing, isn't it? It's a device that can can shoot two light beams and work out when one of them has gone in the realm of only a thousandth of the diameter of a proton. That doesn't... it. I. Uh, that that's that sitting on an earth where you have tectonic plates moving around. It's sitting on an earth where there's trucks going down the street nearby. It's Sitting on an earth where Gary left the door open and it slams or whatever. The the precision of that sort of device, Dougal, it blows my mind. Does, as a physicist, are you cool with the fact that LIGO's there or does it freak you out a little bit?
3: It does freak me out a little bit. It's just incredible that we've got to a stage where we can make measurements that precisely. It it just almost seems unbelievable.
1: So a couple of years ago, gravitational waves passed through, LIGO detected it. And the beautiful story, and people should go and check this out from what I understand the backstory is it was only really, LIGO was still in a sort of experimental phase. And at the time they wondered if they'd really seen it or if it was just a standard built-in independent tech. People used to send false signals.
2: That's right. So because a system like this is so complex the only way of really testing how it works from end to end is to generate false signals and see if every single bit of your system works when that happens. And so the fact that this occurred when we were still in an engineering run, nobody expected to make a detection yet. No one was even sure if it would make a detection at all. It it surprised everyone.
1: I, I read an account where one of the people running LIGO in like the cafeteria or something bumped into one of the people whose job was to send these false Readings, and the false reading guy is not allowed to say to the LIGO guy, "Yeah, we ran some false readings on it," or the LIGO guy is not allowed to say to the false readings guy, "Did you have you been doing any false readings?" But he had some sort of really beautifully subtle conversation of, "Hey, what did you do on the weekend?" "Oh, me, I was at my house on the weekend." "Sure, you weren't like anywhere?" "Just what you weren't working on the weekend?" "No, I wasn't." Was anyone from the false readings team working between 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock? On Have, have you heard this version yeah, of that?
2: I don't even know what to say. I mean, every bit of this process has been uh, surprising, exciting. Um, e- even the, the latest discovery, was at the other end of the, the period. LIGO was about to just close down for a year, and we had sort of given up. Oh, we're not going to detect anything new now. There's only a week to go. And then we got the latest surprise.
1: we'll, we'll get the, 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 And the latest surprise is mind-blowing. But can you take us back a couple of years ago when you heard... Because you would have been part of the secret society of people who would have heard whispers that something was going on, yeah, Tara.
2: I'd rather not call it a secret society; more of a, um, yes, a, a private list of
1: astronomers. There you go. <laughs> that sounds pretty secretive to me. So, what, so what, what was the sort of, as much as you're allowed to divulge? what did you what rumor did you hear what was it like for you thinking wow something might be happening there
2: so we'd all signed up to use our conventional telescopes in our case radio telescopes to try and follow up if we detected any gravitational wave events and I guess for us it was also a trial of how that process would work because no one on the teams had done this before for gravitational waves and so the first thing you get is a is a trigger alert um, which is on this private email list um, you and get th- that
1: happens when LIGO, might have detected something.
2: That's right. As soon as their team, as soon as their core team uh, get to become confident that what they've detected is something worth sharing with the rest of the community, they release an alert. And this, you know, group of a few thousand astronomers around the world receive the alert and it tells you the basic information like where it is, what time it occurred and so on, so that you can start pointing your telescopes.
1: Where it is as in where in the night sky. That's right. And how far away we think some event might have happened.
2: That's right. And where in the night sky is actually a really important issue with LIGO because it's not one of its weaknesses. It's an incredible instrument, but it's not actually very good at what we call localising. In other words, working out where the event happened. And so what's actually sent out in the alert is a map showing a probability region across the sky, which actually is um, hundreds of square degrees. So a huge region on the sky, maybe a few hundred times the size of the full moon.
1: Okay, so if if people picture the Earth now floating in space and... In the big just put put the earth in the middle of a of, of your lounge room, and somewhere on the ceiling or walls, two black holes are gonna bump into each other, and that's what sends our gravitational waves. And somewhere on your little marble earth sitting in the middle of your lounge room, we detect it. You're saying that LIGO can show us roughly Oh look, it's over on that you know that far corner of the ceiling, or maybe the wall, or it's at, but it certainly can't pinpoint where it came from.
2: It can only sort of say somewhere on that half of the ceiling. It's a wow. huge area, yes.
1: And so that's where follow-ups from your sort of teams come in to try and get more precise as to where an event might have happened.
2: That's right. So those first four black hole mergers that LIGO has detected, we don't know where any of them occurred in the universe. We just don't know.
1: But we do know that space went woobada, woobada, We know woobada. they
2: happened, but we do not know where they happened.
1: So, Dougal, at the time, we're talking a couple of years ago now, so you would have still been doing, what, an honours year or something. Uh, yeah.
3: I was coming to the end of my third year of undergrad.
1: And when, as a third-year physics student, you hear that, hold it, we've we've detected gravitational waves. Can you remember what that was like?
3: Uh, yeah, so it was actually the announcement happened... On the day that I was meant to start honors from memory, and I think you cancelled the meeting that we were going to have because you stayed up all night um, listening to the press conference. You pulled an all nighter. <laughs> no.
1: You pulled a gravitational waves all nighter. That's
2: very rare for me. Anyone that knows me knows that I don't do many all nighters. <laughs>
1: okay, so that much. What? Are, what an exciting! You're just about to make a big educational. Yeah, let's let's start taking physics seriously. Yeah, honors year, and bang, they go. Well, we're going to drop on you on your first day of honors. One of the two or three most exciting discoveries in the history of humanity.
3: Yeah, pretty much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that all happened. So we've now, we have this great moment, and it's 100 years after Einstein said it would happen. We've finally imagined a device, then built it, and it works, and with a lot of lucky fluking as to timing. But we've got, yeah, bang, okay, gravitational waves and since then before this recent amazing discovery we've had a couple of other follow up detections haven't we
2: that's right there's there's four in total that are public right now
1: so we've got this whole gravitational wave thing Yes. We're at the beginning of the science of it, but we, we feel we've got it going now.
2: That's right. It was underway, but it was still very separate from the rest of the astronomy community. The gravitational wave community and the astronomy community were still, you know, there, there hadn't been anything to bring us together yet.
1: And you guys, and this is the beautiful part of the recent discovery, because you're part of that broader scientific, I call it the secret society, you say, the group <laughs> of physicists. Uh, so what happened a few, a few weeks ago?
2: So in August seventeen. Um, I was at a conference in the US. We'd sort of just before we went, actually. Um, I'd talked to one of my staff at Sydney Uni and said, "Oh, Dougal, you know, new PhD student. Um, he's going to have to learn how to do some observing on the Australia Telescope Compact Array soon. So, if he has to do some, could you uh, give him a hand? Uh, he's never used it before." And and she said yes. That was that was Christine Lynch. Um, she said yes, great. And then I went off to my conference. I was sitting at the conference with one of my colleagues, and. Um, we saw this alert come through in the middle of someone's talk. Um, This is
1: like there was a couple of years ago. LIGO thinks it might have seen something, sent it out to the secret society, and off we go.
2: That's right. So we got it on this private email list and we read it and straight away it said, we think this is two neutron stars. And we just looked at each other instantly and went, Oh, well, we didn't speak because we we're in a conference talk. So we were on Slack. Um, <laughs> and we immediately went, oh, this is this is important. This is big. This is what we've been waiting for.
1: Okay, let's stop there for a second because I want to go through this really slowly because it's rich and it's beautiful. We'd had black holes before bumping into each other. Big stars collapse, incredible mass, like a teaspoon of it weighs more than Mount Everest, blah, blah, blah. blah. You just said neutron stars. Now, neutron stars are not black holes, are they? No. What are neutron stars?
2: So, neutron stars are the old remnants of a star that has either died through an explosion like a supernova or has just collapsed and left uh, basically the most neutron-rich, dense star you can possibly imagine. It's, It's a special kind of dead star.
1: Okay. So... When we, when I think of stars, I think of our sun, mm-hmm. and our sun gives off light and heat. Mm-hmm. Does a neutron star give off light and heat?
2: Um, it does, um, not in the, not quite like our sun. So if you take something the mass of our sun and then you squash it into uh, an area about the size of Sydney or Melbourne. Um, then you have a neutron star. Some neutron stars you can detect because they have uh, strong radio waves coming from magnetic fields. So there are ways of detecting them, um, unlike black holes.
1: Okay, so you're crushing our sun down to the size of Sydney. That's right. So that's not as dense as black Black hole yet is, but it's
2: it? still really dense. It's it's the densest star that you can imagine. Okay, yeah.
1: so it's the it's the if you if you're measuring star and I don't want to body shame stars, but if you <laughs> if you're measuring stars in terms of how dense they are, you've got like our sun hanging out there, and then there'd be a chain of things all the way up to black hole and neutron stars right up near the black hole. And is that right, Dougal?
3: Yeah, it's it's basically the closest you can get to being a black hole without actually being one.
1: Okay, so this is two neutron stars colliding with each other. Why is that interesting to you guys in a way that two black holes wasn't?
2: Black holes have no fur is one of the things people say, or have no hair. Um, They have no matter on them. So when they collide, we didn't expect to see any electromagnetic radiation. And by electromagnetic radiation, I mean visible light, radio waves, x-rays, the kind of things we normally detect with telescopes. We still observed those black hole mergers with our normal telescopes, because you never know. Um, Theories could be wrong. Um, Observations always, you know, tell the truth. Um, But we didn't...
1: Basically, while they make space-time go wobble, 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 they don't give off any other signals.
2: Exactly. And so we didn't expect to detect anything from those black hole mergers, and we didn't. What we were all holding out for in the astronomy community was a neutron star merger, because we knew that neutron stars, they have a lot of matter, they have a lot of neutrons, um, and when they collided, they were going to produce a a huge explosion.
1: Okay, so while you're saying black holes are so dense and they suck in so hard, even light can't escape their their barriers, neutron stars are, are dense and chunky, but if they smash into each other, they will give off light and radio waves, etc.
2: Absolutely. They they give off gamma rays, the, the most energetic radiation, right through to radio waves.
1: So there was a chance to see this collision in a way that we hadn't seen the black hole collisions?
3: Exactly. Yeah. Okay.
1: What did you do then? You're on Slack with your mate at the moment, getting very excited. Why are you so excited and why is there this sense of Urgency in what you're doing.
2: We'd been waiting for this for years. I mean, and as soon as as soon as LIGO detected those first black holes, the astronomy community was waiting for the moment where we could uh, pinpoint where a merger actually occurred, and this was our first opportunity to do that. But to do it, to to actually, you know, do the observations, you have to respond quickly. And in fact, about half the people at the conference were in the private list and maybe the other half weren't. And so there was suddenly a lot of activity in the room, people ducking out, you know, to have little meetings with people to get their telescopes on the sky as quick
1: as possible. Is this while someone's presenting to the conference? I'm feeling sorry for that person if while they're they're laying out, this is what I've been doing for the last six months and it's going pretty well. These are some of my best jokes. They're really not working.
2: <laughs> yes, it was, it was very real. There was people ducking in and out constantly messaging each other that it was, you know, something was happening.
1: So you're an Australian astronomer mm-hmm. in the US. What's your priority? What's your timeline at that stage? What are you trying to get happening?
2: So I work with three main Australian radio telescopes, the Australia Telescope Compact Array, the Murchison Widefield Array, and the Australian SKA Pathfinder, and I knew all of them had the potential to detect radio waves from this event. So our first priority was make sure we got time on those telescopes as soon as the source would be visible in Australia. Um, and plan our observing strategy to maximise our chance of detecting
1: it. So this whole concept of getting time on a, on a telescope is interesting, isn't it? Because these amazing devices sit there, they don't just sort of sit there waiting for someone to come along and go, oh, let's turn this on and use it. They're, they're constantly going, is that right? And, and, uh, but being used for different, but it's like booking out a tennis court in advance. If there are other people there playing, you just can't have a hit.
2: That's right. So there's a special scheme called Target of Opportunity and that allows you to write a very quick proposal when some extraordinary event happens like this. And if the director feels that that science is valuable enough, they will postpone or reschedule the observers that were meant to be observing that day. So our first priority was start writing that science proposal to try and get time on the Australia Telescope and get our team ready uh, to start observing if we got the time.
1: So I'll be back in a couple of seconds with the Professor Tara Murphy and Dougal Doby and we will reveal to you exclusively what you need to put in a proposal to get a seat in an emergency on some of the hottest radio telescopes in the world. You're on The Big Questions with me, Adam Spencer. So when we left, this was getting pretty exciting. We We've seen a We believe some massive collision between two neutron stars has happened in space. And this plucky group of Australian radio astronomers want to try and witness the event. The problem is all the telescopes in this great country, fantastic telescopes, busy all the time. What I'm thinking, Professor Tara Murphy, is I'm putting myself in the position of a a, a guy who runs an incredible restaurant, like a three-chef hat, just been voted best restaurant in Australia – it's pretty intimate sort of place. I only got, you know, room for about 50 people. I'm booked up for the next six months. You urgently need a table tonight. Now, if you say to me, yeah, but look, oh, it'd just be great. I'd, I'd really like to come. You're not getting in my restaurant. If you say, you don't understand, George Clooney's in town with a mile, and they really want somewhere to eat and they've heard your restaurant. That might make me ring people and say, sorry, I'm bumping you. Is that what we're talking about? You need to impress someone sufficiently that, trust me, this is really important.
2: You need to impress the director with science and with your own scientific credibility. So you have to convince them that this science is important. The telescope, that they're going to reschedule other people. So the science that you want to do, is important science you have to convince them that this telescope is the best telescope to do that science with so that the telescope has the capabilities you have to show them the technical specifications of what you're going to do and you have to convince them that your team is going to be able to take those observations and turn that into scientific results
1: so what did you put in your proposal what was the what was the clincher what was the pitch that that made people realize this is really serious.
2: The pitch was simply this is the first time this has ever been observed in human history and the Australia telescope has the capability to detect radio waves for the first time.
1: Just as a little aside, within the community of, you know, physicists and astronomers, would there be some people who have a bit of a reputation for demanding really urgent telescope time when possibly it's not quite Justified? You don't have to name names, but are there some people who are a little bit pushing in that department? Oh,
2: absolutely. There's certainly, um, you know, this is where science politics comes into play. Yeah. There are certainly um, people that uh, push for that more. And one of the things that I've always been keen to do with my team is make sure that we only really ask for the time when it really is important.
1: So you put in the request. Yes. What happens then? So and what? What's the sort of timeline? You put in the request. How far away from then did you want the time on the telescope and how quickly do they have to make that decision?
2: So this event happened in the middle of the night in Australian time and we knew that this object, the the region, rose over Australia at about 11am. So as soon as it got to about 6am, we actually texted the director and then the deputy director um, to tell them that we were planning, uh, to, to ring them basically first thing in the morning and tell them we were planning on submitting this proposal and that we wanted that time in five hours from now. At the same time as that, I, I messaged my student Dougal and um, one of my postdoctoral staff Christine and a colleague Keith Bannister and told them all, "Hey, get over to CSIRO because we're trying to get time on the telescope and you guys need to be ready to observe."
1: So where were you,
3: Dougal? What happens? A text message comes through to you. I was in bed at yeah. the time, <laughs> and uh, he chose a bad day to sleep in. Yeah, <laughs> check my phone and sort of going, "Hang on, like, am, am I still dreaming here, or, or what's?" What what's did the going? message say roughly? Uh, it was essentially just neutron star merger, get over to CSIRO, we need to observe.
1: Neutron star merger, get over to CSIRO. Have you kept a screenshot of that? that uh, I'm, text? Sure,
3: I'm sure I have it somewhere. Yeah. I probably do. It was Neutrons, probably very brief. Neutron yeah. star merger, <laughs> yeah. get over to
1: the CSIRO. <laughs> wow. And and so it, it, you would have an understanding of the importance of this, but what was, what was it like to receive that message in that journey?
3: It was it was just very, very exciting. Like I said, I didn't initially believe it. I was like, am I still asleep? Um, and then it sort of kicked in, hey, I've got to jump in the car and, and get over there and get going. Cause-
1: and get over to a telescope that I believe I recall you mentioning, Tara, he probably had to do some training on because he wouldn't, no offence, really know what he was doing at this stage?
2: That's right. So Dougal had never observed on the Australia Telescope Compact Array before and we were planning on doing some training with them it turned out that day one of the training was help with these observing with this observing right now
1: this would be like a few years ago when i played like a tiny bit of incredibly low level fourth grade afl at sydney uni and helped like literally helped them out during the exam period when there weren't enough guys to play
2: that's right it, it <laughs> would be like
1: on that Saturday morning, when I meant to be going down to number one oval to play in fourth grade, I get a quick text message from John Longmire going, um, Nick Smith's pulled out. You're playing as a small defender. See you there at three.
3: That's exactly. Right. <laughs>
1: yep. Be honest with me, on your phone in the car on the way over, are you, are you driving the car? I was driving, yeah. Oh, because I, I, <laughs> are you hopping on your phone at all, quickly Googling how do radio telescopes work, that sort of stuff?
3: Uh, definitely not. But as soon as I got out of the car, I was just, yeah. On, on Google, on the uh, user guide, on everything. You're swatting
1: to- on your phone yep. on your way to Ciro, Yep, hoping you've received permission for observation time because you might be part of a team that's going to be the first in the world to ever observe the
3: radio waves from a... Yep. Exactly. It it seems a bit crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> the
2: funny thing was that when Dougal started his PhD, we discussed possible projects, like we do with all students. Mm-hmm. And and my colleague David and I were unsure whether this was actually a good project for a PhD student because it was a bit too risky. And I said to Dougal, if you know you want to do gravitational wave follow up, keep in mind that you might not detect anything in your whole PhD. Mm-hmm. So we have to have a backup plan. And then a few months in, and we it, it Yes.
1: So the backup plan's about to go out the window very quickly. You're in the state, you'd get permission to do the observation. What happens?
2: That's right. So we got the permission to do the observation and then David and I had to very quickly plan what our best observing strategy was. And so by the time we were observing... Um, there had been a list of galaxies released that were all about 50 galaxies that were in the region of the event, and so our strategy that we proposed to get the time was to start scanning each of those galaxies and look for something that was changing because we weren't sure whether we'd detect radio waves on the first day or, as it turned out, weeks later.
1: So there's 50 galaxies. The collision of the neutron stars could have happened in any of those galaxies. So we know LIGO is not great at giving direction. So that's our sort of quarter of the ceiling that we're looking at. And you go through galaxy by galaxy. What sort of thing are you looking for in a galaxy?
2: So yeah, there's a 100 telescopes roughly around the world that were going through every galaxy. And what they were looking for was some new object appearing. So some new bit of light or radio waves that wasn't there before and that appeared after the event, uh, because we were looking for the first detection of electromagnetic radiation from the event.
1: But you, Dougal, from what I understand, you're not looking at a computer screen with Images of stars, like you see in the beginning of Star Trek, when you're going through galaxies looking for, are you just looking at a list of numbers? Are you looking at a graph? What are you actually observing?
3: We're looking at sort of a, a series of graphs that show various information. Um, everything's from sort of the weather around the telescope, so if we need to, you know, adjust things or perform perform more calibrations or anything like that, if it's going to be poor weather, um, all the way up to looking at the essentially the the raw voltages coming off the telescope. The sort of signal that we get.
1: Okay, so a lot of sort of graphs of like.
3: Yeah, exactly. Sort of just a, a nice line graph that you sort of see as, um, you know, uh, signals from uh, sound or just signals in general, basically.
2: But then your job was to take the raw data and make images, make radio images of it. So ultimately to look for the, the signal, we are looking at an image of radio waves on the sky. And what we could see with the telescope um, uh, is each galaxy, some of them, if they're detected in radio waves, would be a little black blob, and we're looking for that blob to get brighter because of this event. Yeah, so there was three of them working on the telescope in the control room in Sydney, and then there was David and I in Washington trying to send them lots of instructions via Slack, um, changing our strategy because you have to realise that these alerts from the telescope and the follow-up team uh, from LIGO were coming in constantly during this period, hundreds of alerts as different people were observing different things and all reporting their results to the rest of that community on the list. And so as you see that new information then you're changing your observing strategy on the fly.
1: And is it a amongst amongst this whole community, if it's discovered, is it just, well, we all did it, it's an equal joint discovery, or is there some concept of someone's going to be the first to see something.
2: It's a very strange feeling because there's a lot of collaboration but extreme competition at the same time. So no, it's not look in the moment of the those first few days, um, it was very collaborative and people were just trying to get to the scientific results as quick as possible, sharing what they had. But of course, afterwards there's a lot of um there's a lot of competition for the for the name on the result.
1: Yeah, hey, so we're all playing in the grand final, but someone's got to be best on ground.
3: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you're talking
1: about that 11am, 12 hour window. That makes sense because we're the Southern Hemisphere. Once we go out of that window, what, we just see nothing until 11am the next day. Is that right?
3: Yeah, exactly. So we, we only had sort of half a day of observing time allocated initially. So we just sort of use that and see what we can see.
2: It takes a long time to analyze the data from a radio telescope, particularly when you're trying to get the most out of the data. So we were actually working around the clock essentially for a few days Um, and and complicated by the fact that I was... Trying to travel home from Washington to Sydney, um, and David was trying to go and see the solar eclipse. That was at the same time. Oh, um, we were just so, it's a big nerdy time for physicists. Was not well neutron it was. stars are
1: banging into each so, other? <laughs> solar eclipses are going on.
2: He was he was going. Should I go and see the solar eclipse still? And I was yes, you st- yeah, you can't miss it. Um, but at the same well, time, dime a dozen. At they? They <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the same time, we didn't want to miss this either. So we were sending these messages from airports, from cafes. You know, as we were travelling with the team back here in Sydney, just. Uh,
1: So 12 hours later, again, at 11am the next day, did you guys still have the telescope and you turn it back on and keep looking? Or did you have enough from that first 12 hours? And if it was there, you would find it somewhere in that?
2: Because you can't get time constantly. In an ideal world, you would just want all the time on the telescope, mm. all the time. But obviously, as you d- discussed before, you can't get that because other people need to use the telescope.
1: Yeah, George Clooney can come for dinner one night, but he can't say, he can't oh, can't "I'm just coming say, back again." There. There <laughs> you going to in a real bind here, George. Yeah. yeah
2: okay. <laughs> um, so, well, he probably could, but yeah. we can't. No. Um, and so, what we were doing was working with uh, some collaborators on the Very Large Array in the US and sharing our information with them and between us, trying to plan, a pattern of monitoring this every few days um, so that we could uh, maximise our chance of detecting something while not using all the telescope time.
1: Take us a bit down the process. How long after that initial exciting slack and you hopping out of bed and heading to the telescope, how far down the track did it all really happen?
2: In radio? Um, For us, it was actually two weeks later. We had to pull in a real black belt Radio astronomy yeah. data guy to so Emil Lentz his name is um and uh,
1: so even amongst even amongst, even amongst us, astronomy data guys right these guys a nerdy uh, astronomer data right. guy
2: yeah our whole, <laughs> our whole team had had a go and um you know we couldn't make a detection and I thought who do I know that you know is better than all of us at uh, doing this kind of data analysis and and so we got Emil in to help and um. When he made the detection, we, we literally discussed it for hours in my office, um, going back and forward about how confident we were that this was real, what it could possibly be, what mistakes we could have made. You know, you have to be very self-critical in science, um, thinking about all the possible things that could have gone wrong. Um, and we're naturally very cautious, but eventually decided to send out this alert to say we detected something.
1: And so what is it you detected? What did you, in inverted commas, see?
2: Right, so what we saw was radio waves that have travelled from the explosion where the two neutron stars merged.
1: These two neutron stars bang into each other. That's right. That gives off gravitational waves. We've discussed that because it's a massive energy event. Space-time itself wobbles. What else do they give off?
2: It also gives off a huge beam of radiation that was initially detected as gamma rays. And um, then as that explosion and that, that radiation travels out into space around the neutron stars... It interacts with the gas and dust, and that causes huge shock waves. Those shock waves are what generate radio emission. So that's what we detect from Earth. And that's why we detect them two weeks later, because this event is really complex. It's not just that instantaneous moment where they merge, it's the huge impact of the explosion after that. And as that explosion expands out,
1: sets off a sort of series of dominoes fall, series of different impacts from that explosion. That's right. And you've read the one in the radio wave exactly. set of impacts.
2: And each wavelength gives us different information about the explosion. So, first, we detect the gamma rays from the really narrow jet. That that come out of the um, merger event. And then we detected optical emission um, that tells us other information about what's going on, including the production of gold that you might want to discuss. Yes. Um, and <laughs> and then two weeks later, we des- we detect radio emission, which is telling us about the energy of the explosion, the shock in the surrounding medium, what kind of environment this explosion happened
1: in. So is there a moment where you go, yeah, that was it. Wow, we've, we have seen it. Or does your yeah, we're pretty sure we have or we think we have bounce around other people for days and weeks and you just sort of dribble into oh yeah, I guess you know what I mean? Is there is there a we like to call them Eureka moments or just a light bulb moment where we've done this?
2: Probably the moment where we actually felt confident that what we detected was real was after the next round of observations on the VLA, where we improved what we call the signal to noise. So in other words, the signal appeared much stronger over the background noise. And then our team with our collaborators, we all thought this is real now. We're really confident. And that's when we started writing the papers. And
1: you you at least, it sounds like you will have some material for your PhD now, <laughs> Google.
3: Yeah, just just a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. I can probably get some out.
1: <laughs> You're going to have it by the end of the month at this right so tell us about the gold because the gold is 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 great
2: the gold is so exciting if you if you google um you know how does gold form or how do you get gold or something like that
1: some people will have heard this the gold that's in the earth is somewhere if your mum's wearing a gold ring that gold in the earth is there because when all the gas formed together and glued up to become the earth some of that stuff was gold but where did the gold come from?
2: And also just a bit of a uh, an addition to that, it's also from meteorites that struck the Earth after carrying the Earth was gold, formed. Right. That yep. were carrying gold, that's mm-hmm. right. But how is that gold actually produced? We know that those heavy elements are produced through nuclear synthesis. We, we know how it works.
1: Nuclear synthesis? Yeah.
2: So that's when, <laughs> when atoms can um, uh, get new neutrons added to them and become heavier elements. So 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 one element transforms into a heavier element.
1: When stars are collapsing to leave us with black holes or neutron stars running, atoms are getting smashed together really hard. And is that what forms the more complicated atoms that are heavier, like iron and gold and that sort of thing?
2: Yes. You basically need um, some seed elements like uh, iron, um, and then you need to bombard them with neutrons, and you need a lot of energy for that to occur. So what has been a bit of a mystery, is that we know that supernova uh, can do that. We, we absolutely know that. But supernova are not enough to explain the amount of gold we see around us and the amount of platinum we see. So we thought there must be some other way that gold and platinum and other heavy elements are, are produced in the universe.
1: And this is where two neutron stars crashing into each other comes in, into the picture?
3: Exactly. So we know that we need a highly energetic environment. We know we need a highly neutron-rich environment. A neutron star merger is both of those.
1: So these two neutron stars smashing into each other produced a bit of gold?
2: Yes, and that was actually observed. So the optical light um, uh, fits a model called a kilonova, and by looking at the spectral lines in that optical light, we can actually see heavy elements. So it is confirmation that neutron star mergers can produce those heavy elements.
1: So somewhere floating somewhere off on that ceiling of space, somewhere near where those two neutron stars smashing into each other there's now what colossal amounts of gold just floating around in space
2: there's there is a lot of it but it's very distributed so yes there's uh, and and we know that um supernova so neutron star mergers don't happen as often as supernova but it turns out they can probably produce more gold
1: where to now? What doors did this open up for your field into the future?
2: In the immediate future, we still want to try and understand more about how black holes and neutron stars are formed. But that's something probably for the physicists and astronomers and, um, you know, it's the details of the model. Um, but broadly, this helps us open up three different angles. Firstly, there's further tests of, re- of general relativity. So one of the other really cool things about this event, um, maybe one of the most important things about it, um, is that it shows that gravitational waves essentially travel at the speed of light. So remember we said this is 130 million years ago this happened. So those gravitational waves and that light have travelled to Earth over 130 million years. In that time, so the difference between when we detected the gravitational waves and when we detected the gamma radiation was 1.7 seconds. So in their journey of 130 million years, they have only uh, got a difference of 1.7 seconds.
1: So the gamma rays are travelling at incredibly close to the speed of light?
2: Uh, no, they were both traveling at the speed of light, but probably the gamma rays were emitted. So so firstly, that uh, is...
1: W- emitted 1.7 seconds later.
2: For some reason, uh, for example, as I said, this event is very complex. So one theory is, for example, that um, actually in the merger, a supermassive neutron star formed for a brief moment and then collapsed into a black hole or something like that. And so in that complexity, you, you the gamma radiation may have left a tiny bit later. Hmm. But to all um practical purposes those uh, the the velocity must agree to to within a, a one part in 10 to the 15 hmm. so um essentially the same
1: so we've learned something about the speed of fundamental forces in the universe from this event
2: literally hundreds of alternative theories of gravity have been ruled out by this one observation so this is a huge breakthrough in theoretical physics in terms of our understanding of relativity.
1: And you've learnt, Dougal, to always leave your phone on <laughs> overnight. Because <laughs> exactly. Exactly. you never know.
3: <laughs> exactly, yeah. I won't, won't be making that mistake again. <laughs> when the
1: big text message is coming through. Look, in terms of our every day, I, I, I know that my phone can only tell me where I am on GPS because in its talking to satellites, we understand Einstein stuff about relativity so that we get, you know, my phone... That's great. My phone now knows where I am and I can use Google Maps because of – is this sort of stuff, these deeper understandings we're coming to about fundamental forces in the universe, does that translate very quickly into my day-to-day life or is it more incredible theoretical understanding at the moment, Tara?
2: I think the theoretical understanding helps us as humans comprehend our place in the universe and how we Mm. came to be. And for me, that's really important. But if you're talking about more practical applications, it's true that, for example, Einstein probably could not have imagined GPS Mm. as a result of his, you know, theoretical models. So, I think that we it's not likely to be an immediate impact, but it's highly likely that there are some impacts um, that, you know, that will affect our everyday life, just like GPS has later down the track.
1: And it must be exciting for you, Dougal. You're at the very beginning of what you know, could well become a, a career as a physicist. To see these, these dominoes falling over now and think you're going to work in this field for the next 30, 40 years, it's, that, to me that's mind-blowing.
3: Yeah, it really is. It's it's just exciting to be sort of at, at the bottom floor of this and sort of get in early and, and hopefully make a career out of it. Yeah, but of
1: all the people getting in the lift at the bottom floor, you're the one. Everyone <laughs> else looking at going, who's hey, the guy? You know you, got, you know, you got the text message. You know, I, know. I heard about it on that podcast with Adam Spencer. <laughs> it's been so wonderful talking to you both. Thank you so much for coming and answering some big questions, Professor Tara Murphy and Dougal Doby. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One studios. Executive producer Jamie Show, series producer Caroline Pegram, and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon.